tell you that um, I think Ogilville Christian Church is probably going to be getting a reputation for certain things because we, uh, we uh, are having quite an impact on our children. In fact, just recently, one of our, uh, our, our children lives in our neighborhood, a child, a young man, and he was riding his bike and his mom was running behind him uh, one night this week and kind of talking to him. My wife and I were walking the dogs and we got out there and she told us a story about her little boy. And uh, he's in kindergarten right now. And the parent of another one of the children in the class had called mom because of something the little boy had said at school. And what he had said, he was going around to all of his friends in the kindergarten, and he was saying to them, now you know, if you do the wrong thing, it's really important that you pray and ask God to forgive you so you'll be able to go to heaven. He was saying that to all of his friends, don't forget, it's important, pray, that God will forgive you so you'll be able to go to heaven. I thought that was a beautiful story. It says a lot about a child and kids and his mom. I love that. It got me thinking about what kinds of things do we think of as most important? What kinds of things do we want to make sure people hear us say because we care about them? Well, it just so happens that um, Jesus, who was a masterful storyteller, frequently told stories but during the last week of his earthly ministry, he told a number of stories to his disciples. Now, there was a reason why he did that. Jesus oftentimes would lay out a biblical principle or truth, and he would follow it up with a story, because stories are easy to remember. And I think the hope here is that he would say, okay, it's hard to remember all these theological truths, but if we boil them down to a story... Maybe you'll remember the story, and you'll keep track of what the truth is. So he uses stories a lot. And this morning we'll be turning shortly to Matthew 25, which is actually a collection of many, many stories that are there. But before I get to the Jesus story, I want to read a story to you from my friend Max Licato. I say he's my friend because I buy his books, so I'm sure he likes me. <laughs> he wrote a story I want to share with you. It's called The Story of the Prince and the Peasant Bride. He writes this, A more intriguing romance has never occurred. His attraction to her is baffling. He is the stately prince, and she is a common peasant. He, peerless, a man among men. She, plain. She's not ugly, but she can be, and she often is. She tends to be sullen, sour, even cranky. Probably not the kind of soul most of us would want to live with. But according to the prince, she is the soul he can't live without. So he proposed to her. On the dusty floor of her peasant's cottage, he knelt he took her hand and asked her to be his bride. Even the angels inclined an ear to hear her whisper the words, yes. I'll return for you soon, he promised. I'll be waiting, she pledged. Now, no one thought it odd that the prince would leave. He is, after all, the son of a king. Surely he has some kingdom work to do. What's odd is not his departure, but her behavior, especially her behavior during his absence. 
For as shocking as this is, she often forgets that she's engaged. You'd think the wedding would be ever on her mind, but it isn't. You'd think the day would be on the top, the tip of her tongue, but it's not. Why, some of her friends have never heard her speak of the event. Days pass, even weeks, and his return isn't even mentioned. Why, there have been times, perish the thought, when she has been seen cavorting with the village men, flirting, whispering in the bright of day. <laughs> Dare we wonder about her activities in the dark of night? Is she rebellious? Maybe. But mostly, she's just forgetful. She keeps forgetting that she's engaged. Well, that's no excuse, you say. Why, his return should be her every thought. How could a peasant forget her prince? How could a bride forget her groom? That's a good question. How could we? You see, the story of the prince and his peasant bride is not an ancient fable, but rather a portrayal of us. Are we not the bride of Christ, Max writes? Have we not been set apart as a pure bride to one husband? Did God not say to us, I will make you my promised bride forever? Yes, we're engaged to our maker. We are the peasants who have heard the promise of the prince. He entered our village. He took our hand. He stole our hearts. Why, the angels even inclined their ears to hear us at one point say, yes. And the same angels must be puzzled by our behavior. We don't always act like we're engaged. Days will pass, even weeks, and we'll say nothing about the wedding. Well, some of those who know us well don't even know our prince is coming. What's wrong? Are we rebellious? To a degree. But I think mostly we're just forgetful. I like the story. Because it really doesn't emphasize, I think, a point that Jesus wants us to get. Matthew chapter 24 is a very peculiar chapter of the Bible. It's a time where Jesus is with his disciples and they're engaging in some, some really important conversations about the kingdom of God and what's most important. They get into a conversation where, where, where as they're walking, they're in Jerusalem. It's the last week, and as they're walking along, the disciples are talking to Jesus. And for Jesus, right, this is a huge week. He knows what's coming. The disciples know that Jesus is really serious, but they don't understand fully what's coming. And their attention isn't really always on Jesus and what he's saying. It's still on the surroundings, and so as they walk around Jerusalem, they see the temple, they see the buildings, they're marveling at all the things that have been built. They're marveling at all the buildings that are around them. And, and they're kind of impressed. It's kind of like their way of saying, man, look what our people have done. Like, we have overcome so much. Look at, look at what we've done as people. And here they are with Jesus, who's so much more important than things and buildings, and Jesus says something profound to them in the early part of chapter 24. He says to them, I tell you the truth. <laughs> you see these things that are around you? 
Not one stone will be left on top of another. Every one of them will be thrown down. The disciples are shocked to hear Jesus say that. Immediately they have a question, well, when's that going to happen? <laughs> when's that going to happen? Now history tells us we know. It'll happen about 40 years later in 70 AD. We know about when it'll happen. But they don't know what's coming. But it gets them curious. So they ask three, three questions of Jesus. The first question they ask in verse 3 of chapter 24 is, when's this thing going to happen? The second is, what will be the sign of your coming, Jesus? Since we're talking about the future, you've told us already that you're going to leave us, so when are you going to come back? How will we know when you're coming back? And then they ask the biggest of all questions at the end. And what will be the sign? That, when will the end of the age be? Like, when will all this, when everything comes to an end? Now, just like last week, the landowner who hired people in a certain order, he reversed the order when they came back. Jesus does the same thing to them. And I'm not going to read all of chapter 24 to you, but he does the same thing. He answers the first question about that they, he, their, their last question he asked first. And so he, he answers some questions for them. He tells them, hey, these are things that are going to come. He gives them this warning. He's, here's the first one. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I'm the Messiah. They'll deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. These things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all the nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. So he answers that question, when will the end of the age be? What will it look like? He goes to that second, what will be the sign? And we're not going to go into all that, but he tells them to take note. Take note of the tree, the fig tree, and see what happens. It's a sign saying, you may not know exactly the day, but you'll know the season. Watch for the things to come. But then he comes to that last part there. When? When's it all going to happen? When will the last day come? That's when Jesus says this. Now about the time of day or the hour, no one knows, he says in verse 36. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Jesus says, I don't know when the last day will be. Only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch 
he would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So that's the context of a story. Jesus has been talking to his disciples about things that are going to come, things that are going to happen in the future, and he says, I've got a story for you now, and I want you to remember the story. And if we're going to hear the story, because it's the story of the bewildered bridesmaids, right? That's what the story is about. And it's in Matthew 25. It's the beginning of a chapter that's nothing but stories. Matthew 25, all stories from Jesus. But for us to really understand this story, we have to let go of something. When we think of weddings, we think of things as they happen in our culture, and that is not anything at all like the culture of weddings that existed in Jesus' day. For one thing, in Jesus' day, a wedding was kind of a two-stage process, and it starts with a big celebration, and of course it ends with a big celebration, and there's this period of time of preparation for marriage in between. Most marriages, but not all, were arranged by the parents earlier, sometimes when you were really young, but they were usually arranged marriages, but not always. And once the day came for this marriage to be put into force, the first thing that has to happen is the, the, the idea of a proposal, a betrothment, an engagement. It was a little different then than now. In those days, if a man had a father, he and his father went to the father of the bride. And it started by them giving the father of bride a nice amount of money. As a gift. Now, a lot of you who have daughters think, boy, it should have been that way for me. That would been great if they had to give me some money. The idea here was, I know, don't, don't be offended, I didn't create the culture of the first century. The idea here was, let's say that you had a family business as a baker, and your daughter was a big part, she was an employee in your bakery, she's a big part of that, and she helped you run your business, but when she got married, she was going to leave and go with her husband, and when that happened, you were going to be absent this person in your life that was a helper to you. So the idea really was, we're going to compensate the father for his loss of a daughter. Again, I didn't create that culture. That's just the culture that was. But it wasn't like the bride didn't get anything out of that. One thing that was always customary was that you gave a gift to the bride-to-be. And that was usually a very, it was usually a, a, a very prestigious gift. It would be gold or silver or a precious stone, something of great value kind of like our engagement rings today. And that was a gift that was given to the bride. Now, when that all happened, the bride and groom were there. There was a celebration of sorts. There would be a banquet. And then they went into this period of preparation. Typically, this didn't last longer than a year from the time of your betrothal to the time of your marriage. And what was supposed to happen during that year was interesting. For the brides, for the girls they kind of go through this interesting space where they would meet with people in their family, women who were married, and they would get this wisdom sharing about what it looks like to be a wife. It actually happens kind of in the story of Mary and Joseph. There's part of the reason Mary goes to Elizabeth. This would be culturally normal for that to happen uh, during a time of betrothment and engagement. And so there's a part of that that happens. So there's some traveling and some visiting 
and gaining wisdom. And along the way, right, people that are in your family, they're giving you things that will be helpful to you. And so you're acquiring some things that you might need. This happens all the time before a wedding, right? You might hand off dressers or there are certain things we pass on to our children before their wedding. It was, that was happening back then. For the groom, preparation was very different. For one thing, during this year of preparation, all young men were exempted from military service so they could focus solely on preparing for their marriage. Like, maybe we'd have a much lower divorce rate if we spent a year preparing for marriage like they did back then. And part of his task was that in their culture in that day, a groom built a room on his parents' house that he and his wife would live in. It was called an insulae. They would add to the house and build a room. That's actually the wording that Jesus had in mind when he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you at my father's house. He would say, I'm building a room on for the bride, the church. So that's what the groom would be doing. He would be adding on. Now, somewhere between the 10th month and the 12th month, in their culture, there would be a night, usually a night, when the groom would come to the bride's house. And while they didn't know exactly when he was coming, they almost always knew it would be sometime between the 10th and 12th month, because it's got to kind of wrap up before the end of that year. So they don't know what night. So at about the 10-month point, the bridesmaids go and hang out with the bride. They kind of go live with her and her family, because they don't know when it's going to happen, when, the, when this wedding's going to be. And, and, and they... they begin to prepare for this event. That's an important event. There are a couple of things that the brides had to have and secure as they were prepared for the wedding. Because see, they didn't have electricity back then, right? And so one of the things that the bridesmaids have to do is they have to provide light for the journey from the bride's house to the groom's house. Because as they walk, they carry these torches and they sing songs and they invite the community to join them at this wedding. Now, we shared last week, they worked from 6 to 6, so you kind of, they didn't do weddings during the workday, they would do them in the evening, so sometime from 6 at night, until whenever, this could happen. The bridesmaids had an important job. It's socially known. Your job is to have three things with you as a bridesmaid. The first is your lighter. It's a little lamp doesn't take a lot of oil. You pour some oil in the little lamp, and you hold on to that. You keep that burning. That's important for one piece. Second, you've got to have lots of oil. Now, these don't use much oil. They don't give off much light. The torch is what's going to give off the light. So the idea here is the torch has to be relit every 15 minutes with more oil added to it, or it'll just burn up the torch. So the bridesmaids have to bring with them to the bride's house enough oil to keep this thing burning all the time, and then also enough oil to light those torches as they go. They all know this is the plan. This is culturally the norm. It's what you're supposed to do when you're a bridesmaid. It's your task. It's an honor to be asked, and that's what you're supposed to be about. So somewhere around the 10 month, these people show up with oil, with lamps, with the torches, and they hang out. And they have a party, and they have a lot of fun. And it's a neat time. They all giggle and talk about what's going to happen because none of the bridesmaids have been married yet. That's one of the rules. All of them are unmarried. That's why in our text they'll talk about them as virgins. 
They're all unmarried women. And they're having a great time. Now, the men in that time period, the groomsmen especially, they kind of like to play a, an honorary kind of game, which was, this is a guessing game. When's he going to come? When's he going to get here? And uh, if you were to wait until, let's say, 10 o'clock at night, when most people are already going back to bed to get ready for the next day, if you came at 10 o'clock at night, well, the bridesmaids might already be turning in to go to bed for the night. They might not be ready. And one of the goals of the grooms oftentimes was actually to catch the bridesmaids unaware, not ready. That was kind of a social, humorous moment, but it had a consequence. Because in that day, right, if you were unaware, you might not get to go to the wedding, which they actually thought was kind of funny. We think of as kind of tragic. But that was the way that it was. So now that you know those things, let's go to Jesus' story. And let's listen to the story Jesus tells about the culture of their day and what happens there. Remember, he wants to make a point to them about what he's just said. The end of time is coming. No one knows when it's going to be, but it's coming. Be ready. Here's the story. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. Five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. He must have waited till well into the 11th or even the 12th month. And not only that, it was late in the day. So it had been many days that he had tarried and not come. They were late in the day. And as was not uncommon, they became drowsy and they fell asleep. But at midnight, <laughs> this was not culturally normative. right? Everybody has to get up and work after this party. So this is not the norm. This is outside of the normal thing. At midnight, the groom comes. And this is an honorary kind of a, of, a, of a groom, right? He's really thrown everyone for a loop. He's come when no one expected him. He's come at midnight. They get the word. He's not quite there yet. They get the word. He's on his way. Like, they had spies, right? You had to know that, right? Like, they had spies. They knew when the insulate was finished. Word got to them, like, hey, he's finished the house. Like, that's a good sign that he's ready for you to come now. And they have spies, like someone's aunt lives down the road, and she's like, I just saw these guys go past. I'm pretty sure they're coming to your house. Now, how do they do that? They didn't have, they didn't have cell phones or Morse codes, so they had to send someone running to the house ahead of them to warn them. So they warned them that he was coming. Here, here, here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. So all the virgins woke up. They trimmed their lamps. They got their lamps ready. They got their torches ready. They were set to go. But the foolish ones said to the wise ones, remember they forgot to bring any oil? Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. We, we, we only had little lamp. We don't have enough oil for what we need. What are we going to do? Now, this is where the story kind of gets awkward. Like way before M. Night Shyamalan or, or way before Alfred Hitchcock, like Jesus was telling stories that had these big plot twists in them. And there's one in this story. 
Now, I recognize something about stories. This really came out last week. I thought about this a lot. Whenever Jesus told a story, it affects people differently. The hearers always hear something different in the story. So when I tell the story of last week or this week, a lot of you will resonate with different characters in the story, and some of you will have sympathy for the people in the story who don't, uh, they don't shine, let's say. Quite the opposite. And you'll see yourself in them. And Jesus knows that. That's a part of the way that he writes and tells the stories. So like last week, some of you might have identified with the workers at one stage or another. And maybe you didn't appreciate Jesus kind of implying, why are you being lazy? Why aren't you working? These things happen when we hear these stories. They, they impact us. And in this story, we're going to have a propensity to be mad at some of the bridesmaids. But, but if you see yourself as the kind who might not be prepared, then you're mad at the ones who aren't prepared. If you see yourself as a prepared person, you might have a little bit of, of derision cast towards the bridesmaids who weren't ready. Like if you're always the organized person, you get frustrated with people who are disorganized and not prepared. So you're going to see yourself in the story. What happens here is going to frustrate some, and others will be completely understanding, but this is what happened. When they trimmed their lights, they, they said, the ones who, the five who didn't have enough oil, said the ones who had plenty of oil, give us some of your oil, because our lamps are going out. But the five who had oil said, no, there might not be enough for both us and you. He's not here yet. Instead, go to those who sell an oil and buy some for yourselves. <laughs> go out there and buy some oil. We're not going to give you ours. We kind of have to sit with that part of the story. So they left to go buy oil. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived at the house. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet so they walked on the procession, they sang their songs, and they got to the banquet hall, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But the master of the banquet replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. And they weren't admitted to the banquet hall. He tells this wedding story to a bunch of men. A bunch of men, his disciples. And he gives them this last word. Therefore keep watch. Because you do not know the day or the hour. Jesus was implying some pretty incredible things to his his disciples, <laughs> keep watch, be vigilant, be ready. You don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. And you don't want to miss it. Think about that. They've given their lives to follow Jesus, but he still told them, be ready. What do you think when you hear that? I, I don't know. In me, it stirs a sense of respect for God in a sense of, okay, if he said that to Peter and to John and to Matthew, he's probably saying it to me too. I need to be aware and cognizant. He's coming back. 
and I need to be ready. I need to make sure that the people who are around me are ready. I don't want anyone to be caught unprepared or unready for the moment. It's a real thing. But he's tarried so long, we kind of think it won't be today. It won't be today. But it could be. Are we ready? Are those we love ready? You know what I love about, about that story about the little boy? You know, the reason that he told all of his friends, if you do the wrong thing, pray that God will forgive you so you can go to heaven, is because they were his friends. And he knows that he'll be in heaven one day. And even though he's only in kindergarten, he wants all of his friends to be in heaven too. We can learn a lot from kindergartners, can't we? Now, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't given your life to Christ, there's still time. He hasn't come again yet. There's still an opportunity. You know, Jesus started his ministry with his disciples. The first thing he did with them was take them to a wedding. Remember this? At the wedding, much like in this story, there was a huge social faux pas. A big mistake was made. They didn't have enough wine to get them through the time they needed. And, of course, Mary tells Jesus, hey, turn the do something. Doesn't want to do something. And, of course, Jesus does this incredible thing, right? He turns the water into wine. It's a neat story. He, he takes care of their mistake. Now, they didn't realize what that symbolized. His disciples didn't yet realize what it symbolized. Even when they heard this story, they didn't know what it was going to symbolize. But Jesus knew. He knew that one day, just like he had turned water into wine to cover over the mistake of the wedding party, that he would be pouring out his own blood in three years to cover over all the mistakes of his wedding party, of the bride, of his creation. He loves us. He wants us to be with him. He wants us to be prepared and to be ready. Are we? Are we? If you have a decision to make, I hope you make it as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation.